This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... She's not your typical rock and roll wife. In the respect, she's not, she's not a blonde bimba with big tits and a fucking Pamela Anderson fucking thing. But I, don't, I don't want anyone like that. Look how many people have had them, and it lasts five minutes. I was in Canada, and I was doing a film, and uh, these two chicks decided to sit next to me and start kissing, and they want to take me home with them. And I was in the equation. Now, of course, being a guy, I'm like, this is going to be hot. Both of them were really hot girls. Partying to me was partying, getting together with people and, you know, banging as many women as I could. That was partying. It's the same boring result, and then the next night you do it again, and it's a new chick, so you're going like, oh, she's fucking hot, and there's no satisfaction in it, and it becomes an addiction because it's the next girl, and then you go, whoa, she's hot. It's been called the penis to my because it came out like in three pieces, head, shaft, and balls, and I just glued them together with Elmer's glue. And I remember Gene's face was just like somewhere between shock, disbelief, envy, and disgust all at the same and I literally pulled my pants up and sat down and sang it. But in terms of glorious, enthusiastic belligerence, well, nobody does it better than Diamond Dave. Diversion Podcasts. Monster Magnet guitarist Phil Caivano and an attractive blonde were rolling around the cushions of the back lounge of the tour bus, knocking over empty beer cans and half-full bags of snack food. They explored different levels of kink. She playfully slapped him around, he tied her up, and they engaged in a variety of sex positions. After their last skull-rattling orgasms, the two were spent. They rolled over, and she sat up and struggled to catch her breath. Caivano offered the woman a drink, and she accepted, donning her bra and underwear, while Monster Magnet's guitarist remained naked as he walked over to the refrigerator to mix a couple of alcoholic beverages. They sat down on the couch, and Caivano gulped down his whiskey on the rocks, while the woman sipped a strong screwdriver. He put his hands behind his head and clasped his fingers bony elbows outstretched on either side of his head. As he reveled in the moment, the woman reached into her black purse and pulled out a piece of folded leather that looked like a wallet. She flipped it open, revealing a police badge and ID. She grinned like the cat that banged the canary. Gaivano's forehead wrinkled with confusion. This is a joke, right? He said. For a moment, he thought he was seriously and truly fucked. Bottles of pills and zipped baggies of weed were scattered across the countertops of the bus, and drug paraphernalia littered the lounge and sleeping bunks. I'm with the Special Investigations Unit, she said. 
I came in here to search for narcotics. But you were such a good fuck, I'm not even going to look. Hey there, and welcome to Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. A diversion podcast's production in association with iHeartRadio. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and in this episode, we'll explore incidents that took place between the 70s and 2000s, when the accepted roles of rock stars and their female admirers were different than they are today. During this time span, many rockers only considered themselves tried and true stars if they could boast of regularly hooking up with groupies. At the same time, many liberated young women across the country marked a notch on their bra straps when they slept with celebrities and then moved on to the next. And we'll address times in the 80s and the 2000s when strippers and porn stars were considered part of pop culture and were celebrated with a reverence usually reserved for attractive actresses better known for how they acted with their clothes on than off. It's worth noting that most of the wild jaw-dropping stories in this episode are relics from the past and were captured on microcassette between 1995 and 2005. Having interviewed and hung out with dozens of bands that thrived during these years, I've heard a lifetime's worth of raunchy tales, some of which were chronicled in the Girls, Girls, Girls chapter of my book Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends. When assembling this episode, I focused on artists known for boasting about their sexual encounters and avoided tales from musicians who told stories that might cause problems today with their wives and kids, as well as the general public. Also, I strive to reveal episodes that were funny or absurd rather than just plain filthy. Maybe most importantly, I only addressed experiences between consenting adults. With that in mind, let's get rocking. Monster Magnet are hardly the most famous metal band, but they're emblematic of artists that bought into the loose sexual mores and values of rock and roll and ascribed to the hedonistic doctrine defined by the line in Spinal Tap, have a good time all the time. Dave Windors first connected rock with sex when he was 14 years old and snuck into the city to check out a show by the psychedelic experimental British band Hawkwind which accompanied their performances with short-circuiting strobe lights, enough smoke to trigger most fire alarms, and dancers that stepped straight out of a Martian edition of Playboy. I swear to God, she was six foot tall named Stacy, and she was totally naked, a naked babe with giant boobs dancing in my face. And I was like, this is what I like. There's a reason the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll begins with the word sex. Even in a society filled with legitimate allegations of sexual harassment, sex still sells. It factors into practically any novel or movie targeted at adults. And sex has been an integral part of hard rock since the 60s, when musicians were living in an age of free love and a select batch of groupies made plaster casts of rock stars junk. One of the highlights of Stephen Davis's Led Zeppelin biography, Hammer of the Gods, features an incident in which members of Led Zeppelin and others allegedly use a live mud shark as a sex toy on a willing groupie. Decades later, 
Motley Crue's best-selling autobiography, The Dirt, up the ante on debauchery, with chapters that could have made the members of Led Zeppelin feel like washing their hands. Also, flip to practically any rock movie, and you're sure to find stories about sexual misadventures, raunchy rendezvous, and outrageous anecdotes that would make Gene Simmons raise an eyebrow. Speaking of Gene Simmons and raising body parts, here's a pretty crazy story about Gene regarding a run-in he had with biohazard vocalist Evan Seinfeld, one of the most uninhibited, salacious musicians you'll ever meet. And that's saying a lot. When Gene was a little younger than he is now, he kept books filled with pictures of all the groupies he slept with on the road. When Seinfeld heard about Gene's books, he decided to start one of his own, and he had plenty of subjects to choose from. It wasn't long before he had a pretty substantial collection of fairly lurid Polaroids. Gene Simmons kept updating his collection and Seinfeld built upon his. Then, in 1997, there was a meeting of the minds, sort of. The Monster the Rock we were opening for KISS. It was KISS, Ozzy Osbourne, Sepultura, Biohazard, Danzig. It was such an amazing bill. And uh, I remember Billy and I from Biohazard um, hosted the MTV Headbangers Ball from Donington. We had to interview all the bands. I remember Gene says to me after the interviews, I'm like, so I heard you have a book. And uh, I was like, I've got a book, Gene. I said, actually, you inspired my book. I said, because I heard about your book. What happened next was kismet and comical and downright nasty. Gene reaches in his, in his kiss. He's, he's in full kiss makeup in his full demon outfit you know, the ultimate rock star, and he reaches into his shirt and pull, under his wing and pulls out a, a photo album. And I was, I'm looking at his book, and it's like, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures. He's like, this is just one volume from the last tour, but, you know, I've got, you know, hundreds of volumes. And I was so impressed. I was like, wow, that's fucking amazing, dude. I was like, he says, I heard you have a book, too. And I was like, you want to see my book? I felt like it was like the meeting of the mind. <laughs> Had Gene Simmons known that Seinfeld would become an adult film actor, spend six years married to porn star Tara Patrick, and own his own production company, Gene might not have asked to see Seinfeld's book. Or at least, maybe he would have worn rubber gloves. And I sent one of the guys to my crew, I was like, dude, go to the bus and get the blue gym bag, put the book in it, and get it back here. Gene Simmons wants to see the book, you know? And uh, I remember uh, he opens the book, and like, my book is hardcore, you know? And I remember Gene's face was just like, Somewhere between shock, disbelief, envy, and disgust, all at the same <laughs> And thinking to myself, I'm on to something here. The early 90s was a thrilling time for Biohazard and Monster Magnet. But in truth, the two bands were just eating from the troughs that were constructed by wild rockers decades earlier. When Black Sabbath opened shop in the late 1960s as Earth, Ozzy Osbourne and his bandmates were basically clean, sober, and somewhat naive English boys. Then, after 1970s Paranoid, they toured America and were suddenly thrown into a sea of groupies and other indulgences. At age 22, Osbourne, who had been an outcast in school, was suddenly surrounded by groupies eager to show him a good time, which is why he easily relates to the kid-in-the-candy-store analogy used by practically any struggling, undernourished, young band that suddenly gets a taste of the so-called good life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
Well, I know what I was like when I found what it was all about. I was wanting to go anywhere. You know, I found it, it was just for urinating through. I wanted to stick it anywhere. The thing of rock and roll, you rock and you roll, you know. The most unpredictable things that will happen do, can and will it do happen. Pentagram frontman Bobby Liebling, who worshipped at the altar of Black Sabbath, took a similar path to hedonistic abandon. While Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult, Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, Kiss, Aerosmith, and ACDC were getting their rocks off worldwide, smaller bands, including Pentagram and Sir Lord Baltimore in the States, and Budgie and Warhorse in the UK, were satisfying their overactive sex drives in smaller markets. Says Pentagram frontman Bobby Liebling. By about 73, there were like between 50 and 100 people at every practice just for the rehearsals. And um, what happened is we'd lock ourselves in. The door was of a sort that you couldn't break it in because it opened outward. And it was a metal door too, with metal reinforcement. And we would have the place full of uh, a bunch of young girls and uh, hippies. And there was all kinds of sex and drugs going on all night. It's important to note that not all rock-obsessed women were mindless bimbos. Not in the 70s, 80s, or ever. Over the decades, Pamela DeBar has hooked up with many musicians, but is also an actress, author, and the inspiration for the character Penny Lane in Cameron Crowe's film Almost Famous. Pamela Anderson, who married Tommy Lee and Kid Rock, and also dated Brett Michaels and even Fred Durst, but sadly, not Borat Saidiev, is and always will be a household name. And not just for her role in Baywatch, or her ubiquitous sex tape with Tommy Lee. Another Baywatch regular and film actress, Donna D'Arico, was married to Motley Crue's Nikki Six for 11 years. And Roxana Shirazi, a libidinous lady who chronicled lustful hookups with guys from Guns N' Roses and Avenged Sevenfold, amongst others, in her memoir, The Last Living Slut, still relishes her past as a rock and roll groupie. One of the most interesting and creative groupies in the history of rock was Cynthia Alberton, better known as Cynthia Plastercaster, who established herself by convincing rockers to place their penises into plaster molds so she could create lifelike anatomical sculptures. Wayne Kramer from the MC5, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, and appropriately, Chris Connolly from the Revolting Cox are among the musicians to drop trow for Cynthia. But her most famous, if not perfectly crafted work, is of hard rock legend Jimi Hendrix. Well, I hate to say it, but Jimi Hendrix's is not good resolution because it was a, an early one. It's pretty rough. It was um, pulled out of the mold prematurely, so it's it, it's been called the penis de Milo because it came out like in three pieces, head, shaft, and balls, and I just glued them together with Elmer's glue. Once Frank Zappa declared Cynthia's plaster castings, quote, true art, she had no trouble finding subjects to pose. But creating enduring art was never her intent. It started out as a, a means of 
getting laid by, by um, rock stars that I liked because I was just too shy to seduce them. But um, I, it, it, they actually kind of backfired on me because I wound up being the mold mixer most of the time, working with a partner who would do the simulation. One of the most famous and fearsome women drawn to metal and musicians was Ozzy Osbourne's wife and manager, Sharon Osbourne, who's about as far from a rock groupie as Tom Hanks is from a serial killer. The daughter of powerful and intimidating band manager Don Arden, Sharon played a major role in resurrecting Ozzy's career after he was booted from Black Sabbath. In the process, she was practically disowned by her father, who wanted to oversee Ozzy's career on his own. And this was before she began a romantic relationship with the metal legend. When Sharon first became close with Ozzy, he was practically living in the street. Ozzy was um, out of Black Sabbath. He was living in a hotel down the road, and a friend of mine was there, and he'd left some money for me with Ozzy that he owed me. So I went up to see Ozzy, and that's when we kind of struck up a, a real friendship. How did that happen? I mean, at the time, he was very down and out. Very down, and I could see it, and he needed someone to talk to. He needed a friend, and I, it was just one of those things. You know, I knocked on the door to get my money, and he was like, hi, Ozzy, how are you doing? And he was like, I'm down, you know, and it just, it just started from that. Ozzy had lost his home and everything because he divorced, so he left everything to right. his wife, so he had nothing. But he was kind of used to struggling, and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I was determined that we were going to get it back again. She's not your typical rock and roll wife, in the respect that she's not, she's not a blonde bimbo with big tits and a fucking Pamela Anderson fucking thing. But I don't, I don't want anyone like that. Look how many people have had them, and it lasts five minutes. Yeah. I married my wife for life. In the late 70s, Kiss emphasized the parallel between rock and roll and sex and became the idols of millions of sex-starved young dudes. Bassist and vocalist Gene Simmons bragged about how many women he slept with. His partner in grime, vocalist and guitarist Paul Stanley, isn't as upfront about his sexual conquests, but he still addresses the subject in interviews, even when the question isn't directly about sex as evident from this exchange I had with him in 2014. The song, uh, you know, again, rock and roll, all night, party every day, it's sort of an irony there because the idea of, of uh, partying every day implies to some alcohol, drugs, um, certainly women weren't off limits for you and Gene, but uh, you, did you not mean any of the... Uh... Party didn't mean that. Mm -hmm. It took on a different definition, an expanded definition and connotations as time went on. But partying meant getting crazy, you know, having a great time. Partying to me was partying, getting together with people and, you know, banging as many women as I could. That was partying. Um, that somebody else thought it was something else. I get it, but... I didn't write it as that, and either I was very naive or somebody else wants, uh, you know, needs uh, an alibi for what they've done. I, it uh, never meant that. Who had more women back then, you or Gene? 
I think I had more that you you would um, qualify as women, and with him you were, you were also throwing in cattle. But you know, it's a question where you know it's very easy for me to take the bait. But you know, look, we we both we both did very well, and in all aspects of his life, Gene likes to stand up and say, "Look at me, and look what I've done." But you know, um, that's okay. That's okay. But who had more? I have no idea. He certainly had one that I didn't want. KISS were extraterrestrial in both their presentation and extracurricular exploits. Yet, while they were deified and musically emulated, their level of stardom was out of the reach of most aspiring rockers. Van Halen, on the other hand, were much more relatable and became the template for a new wave of California-bred party rock. Even before they were signed, they became a primary influence to legions of young musicians. Van Halen's unrelenting energy and outrageous antics were captivating, and they had no trouble attracting the ladies with their sexual bravado, flash, and charm. Fronted by fast-talking David Lee Roth, Van Halen became a staple of American rock and roll, and their image encompassed everything kids with Christy Brinkley posters on their walls and rock and roll in their hearts held sacred. When asked about the sexual energy Van Halen brought to the Hollywood scene, Roth launches into a stream of consciousness banter that's characteristically self-aggrandizing and alluring. How do you get to what rock and roll was originally designed for? To create energy, to create um, upset, to shake the tree. You know, there's a point, I think, where you become or rather address a Popeye form of Zen. I am what I am. But in terms of glorious, enthusiastic belligerence, well, nobody does it better than Diamond Dave. What I serve up is a point of view and an attitude that registers in you physically. And we bang that catalog like a freebie from a Vegas hooker. Van Halen toured for three years before they were signed in 1978. Right away, songs like Runnin' with the Devil, Ain't Talkin' About Love, and Jamie's Cryin' became instant classics. They were loud, heavy, and as pungent as a room full of tapped beer kegs. In 1978 and 1979, the band hit the road, and all their wildest fantasies came true. As guitarist Eddie Van Halen told me in the 1990s, did you get into the groupie scene at first? Sure, in the beginning, you know. What are so any any totally uh, crazy? But, you know, I was kind of shy, so I just kind of whatever came to me, kind of. <laughs> I wasn't really, you know, I'm not, I'm not a smooth operator when it comes to the mouth. <laughs> so but, I didn't I didn't have a rap, you know. I just, oh, he's kind of cute. Okay. Van Halen bassist Michael Anthony also enjoyed the perks of being a rock star, but he had a long-term girlfriend at the time, which he's now married to. So he was pretty unresponsive to the endless parade of groupies. Still, he'll never forget the first time he was exposed to the lifestyle. Van Halen was in Little Rock, Arkansas, when they were approached by none other than Sweet Connie Hamsey, the renowned groupie mentioned in the Grand Funk Railroad song, We're an American Band. She was a school teacher, but she was like a famous groupie. Everyone was standing in a room and she came in. And we all knew about her from stories and whatever, and it was like, She's, she's wearing this dress and she pulls one like little tie on it and the whole thing drops off. She's all, okay, boys, who's first? You know, and it was like, shit. <laughs> it 
you know, and I, I and I, I feel proud to say that Connie never got to me. Is that right? No, she never got to me. Only because knowing that she'd only been with about a zillion other rock stars or whatever, <laughs> for some reason that didn't really make her very appealing to me. Anthony bowing out of the groupie game left more girls for the other guys. But it wasn't long before Eddie lost interest in the groupie scene as well. It got to the point with me, you know, right after a gig, I come back to the hotel, 90-year-old party going on, and I said, get me on the different floor, will you? Too much of anything is not good. Yeah. And I just burned out on the whole thing. I just later in bed at night after a gig started, you know, this can't be it. Eddie was in search of a more stable life, and soon after met actress Valerie Bertinelli at a Van Halen concert she attended with her brothers in 1980. The two started dating and got married in 1981. While Eddie focused on his family life, his brother, frenetic drummer Alex Van Halen, and Diamond Dave kept the party raging. Roth, who enjoyed everything to excess, hired scouts to scope the crowd and recruit the most beautiful girls for after-show revelry. It started out where they would, you know, he had sections, I guess, where he would have a signal as to what section it happened and by the end of it he would have the he'd have the crew guys bringing girls and they'd, they'd herd them in like cattle and whoever found the girl that was to be with him that night chose one that that roadie would get a hundred bucks or something like that of course groupies have existed in the music scene since artists first stepped on stage but in the late 70s and early 80s it was the perfect time for rebellious horny young adults to lash out at their parents by immersing themselves in the emerging hair metal scene and striving to become, or hook up, with rock stars. Sex hung heavy in the air. Many youths from divorced families had lost faith in monogamy, and the AIDS epidemic had yet to devastate the nation. In addition, the entertainment industry was churning out heavily sexualized movies like Porky's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and music videos featured scantily clad women as prominently as band members. Tom Bourgeois, the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Nothing But A Good Time, says that, like many other entertainers, 80s metal bands tapped into the cultural zeitgeist of the era for fun and profit. Having, you know, a bunch of beautiful women in your video is certainly gonna probably be more compelling to your, uh, audience than than you jumping around you know for 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 three minutes so i think partially it was that and, and also i think that there was um it was like part of the culture when you really think about like movies being made in that early 80s period like zapped with scott bayo and heather thomas or like the porkies movies or even like baywatch a little later like there was a, it was just a very like, quote, unquote, I don't know what a better word is than bodacious time. You know what I mean? Like, that was that was the aesthetic. Says Rich Beanstalk, the other writer of the hair metal oral history, Nothing But A Good Time. When you're talking about this music, you're also talking about a big part of the image that they're putting out is this sort of like, you know, living it up, larger than life, party, you know, sort of kings of the world type of thing that isn't necessarily part and parcel in the same way lyrically of like Led Zeppelin, you know, like, or any of that stuff. Sabbath, obviously part of sort of the male dominance, you know, image is is having all the women 
around you and at your disposal. From the earliest days of Black Sabbath, metal had primarily been a boys club, and it didn't matter what guys and bands looked like. There were always girls around to massage their egos. With the dawn of hair metal, however, bands like Motley Crue, Rat, and Poison tapped into a long hair and makeup look they stole from British bands like T-Rex and The Sweet. And sexual conquests became as important to metal as gold and platinum records. If you were a kid growing up trying to figure out like what to write about as a band person, and you're influenced by Van Halen, that's going to be one of the tropes. Beautiful girls, etc., etc. It became like a Duriger thing to, to have a, a song about. So I think a lot of it is the David Lee Roth influence where you're like celebrating women, but it's also this whole California image of the, of the you know, convertible and the top down and the, the whole thing. So I think that has a lot to do with it too. Once Van Halen signed the blueprint for the crazy 80s, tons of libidinous metal dudes were suddenly signed to major labels and were living out their fantasies. They were having the time of their lives thanks to a code of conduct nicknamed PPP. The three Ps, the pussy part and paycheck, I mean, there's so much out there, there was no competition there. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one time I had a quota, I'd have to have three different women a day. It was like an addiction. That was Rat's vocalist Stephen Piercy. From Def Leppard, here's guitarist Phil Collins. Well, I was 24 when I joined yeah. the band, and we, we had our first platinum album. We toured in the States. There's chicks coming up all the time. You, you're going, wow, this is fucking great. Yeah. This is why I got in it. You know, you're yeah. doing three, three in a day and two the next day, and it's like, what? This is absolutely great. You just, you're a young kid, and you're having a blast. You know, and that's what, of course, and everyone. But then it was the eight. This was pre-AIDS. It was absolutely fun. It didn't, it didn't seem wrong at all. Says Megadeth frontman Dave Mustaine. If you take into consideration where I was spiritually at that time. It was not so much a release as it was kind of paying the devil his dues because I was not happy and I was just looking for some kind of form of happiness and uh, I thought that that's where happiness came from and, and it wasn't. I mean, the the, uh, the act of appropriation is good and therefore not to be used lightly. And, you know, I, I enjoy getting a nut just like the next guy. But there was a time where, at the end, before I got married, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fuck just one girl. I had to have two fucking each other for me to even get excited over it. And, and that's when I started to think, you know what, I'm starting to lose my perspective on things here. Recording studios were originally designed for artists to diligently work on new songs and track albums. For arena-rocking 80s metal bands, however, studio sessions were sometimes as crazy as hotel parties, just without all the fire extinguisher wars and TVs jettisoned out the window. The Guns N' Roses song Rocket Queen, from their breakthrough album Appetite for Destruction, includes a snippet from a two-hour studio recording of vocalist Axl Rose getting it on with stripper and groupie Adriana Smith. In 2016, she told the Daily Mirror that everyone was wasted, and her boyfriend at the time, Guns N' Roses drummer Steven Adler, was out with another girl. 
Adriana wanted payback, and Axel obliged. For the public good, of course. Skid Row frontman Sebastian Bach had a similar, slightly less sordid tale surrounding the video for the band's hit, 18 in Life. My most vivid memory of making that video was right before I shot my whole scene where I sing it. I was upstairs in the studio fucking my chick. <laughs> I had my hands around my fucking ankles and I was banging the shit out of her. And, and then they knock on the door. They go, come on, dude, you're up. And I literally pulled my pants up and sat down and sang it. So, <laughs> so I, I have that just fucked look on my face. Even parties that go well past sunup have to end sometime. And then there's the cleanup and hangover. In the case of 80s metal, the revelry came to a resounding halt with the distorted chord riffs of a single song, Nirvana's Smells Like Team Spirit. The track was released on September 10, 1991, and within weeks, it was in heavy rotation at radio stations across the country. MTV, eager to schedule new programming that didn't seem as misogynist, aired the video as often as it played the clip for Metallica's Enter Sandman which had debuted only 22 days earlier. Of course, Metallica's Black Album was huge, and the band had the stamina and fan base to outlast the alternative revolution. But most 80s metal bands, Barbie doll groupies, and even a lot of popular thrash acts practically fell off the earth as major labels fired their metal A&R staffs and searched frantically for the next Pearl Jam. Metal bands without labels scrambled to find new homes at companies with smaller budgets and continued to play, but for smaller audiences in local rock clubs. Others packed up their gear and disappeared for a while. One of them was Lita Ford, who, along with Joan Jett, started as a teenager in the hard rock all-girl band The Runaways. When they broke up, Lita launched a successful solo career that lasted through the mid-90s, at which point she became fed up with the politics and pettiness of the record business. I did want to get away from all the evils of the music industry. And, you know, you think about it, I had my first album out when I was 17. It was 1975. And really, you know, you think about, oh, you're an 80s hair band or whatever. I'm not an 80s hair band. I come from the 70s. And uh, I started when I was really young, so... By the time I had my first child, or was pregnant with my first child, I really wanted to just bail and raise my kids. For a while, hard rock bands seemed to spend more time talking about political correctness and equal rights and, well, taking narcotics, than they did bragging about sexual conquests. Surely, some of that was still happening. But you'd never know it by the self-deprecation in the band's lyrics and the supposedly anti-rock-and-roll aesthetic they conveyed. As loud and raucous as Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains were, metal fans eventually burned out by the lack of sleazy energy, showmanship, and guitar acrobatics. And maybe adolescents started craving lyrics about sex and revenge as much as tunes about self-destruction. Around the same time as Monster Magnet were on the rise, a scene was developing, primarily in Bakersfield in Sacramento, California, that eschewed both traditional metal tropes 
and alternative self-reflection in favor of a staccato burst of guitar, otherworldly sound effects, and beats inspired by hip-hop. New metal had arrived, and with it, bands like Korn, Deftones, Limp Biscuit, and Coal Chamber brought a new style of sexual energy and lyrical content. Many of the groups were only too happy to indulge in a hedonistic, groupie-filled lifestyle and promote their misadventures to a press that had grown hungry for dirt and sensationalism. There's an interesting parallel between the high-end strippers that intertwined with the 80s hair metal scene and the porn stars that dovetailed with new metal. As companies like Vivid Video and Evil Angel became more mainstream in the 90s, it became common for musicians to date and even marry adult actresses. The aforementioned Evan Seinfeld wedded Tara Patrick. The late Static X vocalist Wayne Static was married to the late Tara Ray. Corn vocalist Jonathan Davis married the late Devin Davis. Limp Biscuit bassist Sam Rivers has been in a long-term relationship with Kayla Page. Both of them are still alive, though Rivers almost died from a liver failure and needed a transplant. Anyone sense a pattern here? Finally, or maybe not, ex-orgy drummer Bobby Hewitt married Shane's World star, Shane. Matt Zane had his cake and ate it too. Not only did he front an established industrial metal band, Society One, for years he directed and acted in adult movies, many of which combined the worlds of metal and porn. His series, Backstage Sluts, featured members of Limp Bizkit, Seven Dust, Sugar Ray, and Nashville Pussy talking about their wildest sexual antics. These were then reenacted by actual porn stars. In Backstage Sluts 2, No Ass, No Pass, Lynn Strait, the late singer of the band Snot, actually performed in a threesome with his girlfriend and an adult actress that went by the name Tangerine. Tragically, Strait died in a head-on collision in 1998, before he could further his adult acting career. As new metal dovetailed with the mainstreaming of pornography, a new generation of groupie emerged, replacing dyed feathered hair with a canvas of tattoos and piercings for every orifice. Generally uninterested in mainstream celebrity, these women seemed to love giving and giving, and if they received, all the better. Through the early aughts, actress Joanna Angel hooked up with lots of her musician friends in the metalcore scene, and many of them didn't have luxury buses or posh hotels in which to party. To the satisfaction of most, she connected in smelly tour vans, outdoor festivals, and even the grimy bathroom at New York's legendary dive CBGB's. Angel laughs at the idea that she was victimized by sex-crazed musicians out for a quick thrill. Well, I think I was the crazy one, <laughs> to be honest. Um, a lot of the guys that I hung out with in bands, they were pretty shy and pretty quiet which, outside of their stage performance. Rapper, rocker, and actor Ice-T once told me about the time he was touring on Lollapalooza with Body Count when someone in his bus told him there were girls in a trailer giving oral sex to guys in bands. Curious, but uninterested in any groupie action, he walked over to the trailer, where 50 dudes were waiting patiently in line. He joined the pack, and when he got inside the trailer, there were no lights, 
assumedly so the girls and customers could maintain anonymity. Even so, when it was his turn, a musician in line introduced him to one of the girls as Ice-T. And she said, oh, you're back again. Obviously, someone else claimed they were Ice-T. Another time, before he was married, Ice found himself in an even stranger situation. I was in Canada, and I was doing a film, and uh, these two chicks decided to sit next to me and start kissing, and they want to take me home with them. And I was in the equation. Now, of course, being a guy, I'm like, this is going to be hot. Both of them were really hot girls. So I get in their car. They got a fucked up car. I should have known the car was full of shit. And they take me to this destination. But when we got to their house, they had a mattress on the floor. They had candles all over the fucking place. They had books like on Charles Manson and and, and, and Son of Sam and all kinds of shit. My dick literally crawled up inside my nutsack. (laughs) And I had to go. Immediately, I was like, you know what? I know if I stay, I'm going to want to spend the night with you guys. I got a call time tomorrow. I was doing a movie. Mm-hmm. I got to get out of here. You know what? I got your numbers. Let's just do this when we got more time. And I got the fuck out of there. Because <laughs> I'm like, this bitches is about to try to sacrifice me or do some blood ritual or some shit. But it just wasn't sexy. Some artists in the early aughts slept with lots of women on the road because it was the rock and roll thing to do. Others did it because they missed their wives or girlfriends and wanted to fill the intimacy void. Then there were those for whom hooking up on the road became an addiction, something they needed to have no matter who they hurt in the process. Godsmack vocalist Sully Erna was one of them. And while his groupie encounters tore him apart and devastated his girlfriend of six years, he found himself unable to stop. You know, you go out, you play the show, you fucking hit the bottle, you're drunk, the chicks are back there, the party's back there, you're the um, spotlight of the whole thing. You know, you get all consumed into that shit, and next thing you know, you know, you wake up the next morning and you get some stranger in your fucking bed that you don't give a fuck about, (laughs) and you can't wait for it to get the fuck out of there, and, you know, you just... It's, it's the same boring result, and then the next night you do it again, and it's a new chick, so you're going like, oh, she's fucking hot, and, you know, whatever, and it's the same result over and over again. It's, you can't get away from it. It's, there's no satisfaction in it, mm-hmm. and it becomes an addiction because it's the next girl, and then you go, whoa, she's hot. You know, I haven't fucked her yet. Obviously, a lot has changed since the 90s. These days... It seems like most touring bands avoid the groupie scene, or at least tell interviewers that they aren't interested in hooking up with female fans. There are certainly exceptions, but there are several solid reasons rockers are keeping it in their pants when they're backstage or on the bus. In a society dominated by cell phones, artists are one clip away from being a top story on TMZ. For anyone that wants to maintain a private life, and keep their relationships or marriages intact, that's a hell of a motivation not to have casual sex. Also, with the rise of the Me Too movement, musicians became terrified of being accused of sexual misconduct, especially after seeing members of Kiss, Motley Crue, Marilyn Manson, Ministry, 
Iron Reagan, Blood on the Dance Floor, and others fill press headlines following accusations of alleged sexual misconduct. Finally, many veteran touring bands now have kids. They've been around the scene forever, and even if they've been there and done that when they were younger, they've gotten their hedonistic rock star life out of their systems and opt for sightseeing, fine dining, or reading instead of seeking cheap thrills. Which brings us back to Monster Magnet, a band caught in a time warp of rock and roll outrageousness and heavy metal debauchery. Wives? Kids? Not a chance. During that European tour for Spine of God, Dave Windorf sauntered into a coffee shop in downtown Amsterdam in the middle of the afternoon. It wasn't long before he bumped into two local ladies who were clearly digging Monster Magnet's frontman. The women were petite, yet busty. One had long blonde hair. The other had slightly lighter hair that went down to her shoulders. After some small talk, the girls invited Windorf to take a bike ride around the city with them. Deflated, he told them he didn't have a bike. His disappointment was short-lived. They got me a bike with these two girls and rode through Amsterdam to this weird flat that they had by a canal. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking cool. And they knew who I was. They're like, yeah, you're a rock guy. And they're a couple years older than I am. And they knew what they were doing. They were like doing this thing. They were getting me. And I was like, I knew I was gotten got. And I was like, this is it. And I was just so excited and wanting to fucking like really, you know, make a mark. (laughs) I wanted to make my mark. I wanted to be fucking James Bond and fucking Johnny Holmes all in one. (laughs) I'm ready for these girls. And I'm like, all right. The blend of intoxication and sexual euphoria boosted Windorf's libido to the level of bursting. The two girls removed their tops and took turns French kissing the rocker who managed to undress between slobbery smooches. We get into bed, and it's insane. It's like European, like, hallucinations. Beautiful women, long hair, tattoos and stuff, and we're getting into it, and it's almost like a slow-motion dream of, of eroticism. And I don't know if you know anything about European hotels and flats, but they're very small, oh, yeah. low ceilings. And yeah. it, everything's, like, kind of squat. There was a ceiling fan because God forbid they have air conditioning. Um, you know, like that's just against the rules. I, at one point, I got up to make a, like, to really, really make my move and just, you know, to show, to show these girls in the world that I knew what I was doing, to make some sort of manly lion roar, like to stand up on the bed, you know, like, just stand up. So I could look down over these two women and like, I am here. Without warning, that slow motion dream of eroticism turned into a nightmare. I threw my hair up and it got caught in a ceiling fan. And in a second, I was like, ah! And I was sitting there, really long hair that almost down the middle of my back. And I'm just standing there in this kind of half crouched, like, ah, ah, position with my hair caught in a ceiling fan. The thing had stopped because of my hair. Ah. The girls pointing and like one laughing and the other one like horrified, like, the other one like, Between the laughter and the shouts of pain, the middle-aged neighbors on the other side of the cardboard thin walls started to wonder what was going on. Fearing something bad had happened to their neighbors, they knocked on the door. A fat old lady and a guy come in. They're all, and they're standing there, just 
I'm, I'm, I'm like in this position, standing up completely naked. Now the girls have like towels on them and sheets are wrapped around them. And they're all discussing how to get me out of the mess. <laughs> if it was today, I would, there would have been like 90 pictures taken of me. I was completely helpless. So they went and got scissors and I'm like, don't cut the hair, I need the hair. Of course, they did cut the hair, so I had a big chunk out of my head. Yeah, it was brutal. I left on my bicycle in shame. Wherever there are young, attractive women enamored with talented touring musicians, there will always be temptation. For the young, socially conscious, media-savvy, STD-aware breed of metal bands, if there is such a thing, that's fine. As long as everyone's of legal age and on the same page, Tour vans will be shaking, and hotel bed springs will still be squeaking. That said, it's worth noting that everyone has a video camera on their cell phone, and social media makes posting lascivious images as easy as pushing an elevator button. So it's simple to understand why more and more rockers, even those without girlfriends or families, are abstaining from misbehaving and checking their libidos at the door. For those who want to sustain an active career in music, maybe the best motto of the 2020s is, when in doubt, don't find out. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer. And our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Diversion Podcast.